If you're looking for premium quality vitamins and natural supplements, New Roots Herbal has you covered. Proudly Canadian and family owned for over 30 years, their dedication to quality and testing truly sets them apart. Each ingredient is rigorously tested by their ISO accredited lab from raw materials to final products. So you get exactly what is promised on the label. Effective, pure ingredients, safe from heavy metals, pesticides, and toxic chemical solvents, guaranteed. New Roots Herbal products are available exclusively at health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com. U.S. residents can now find New Roots Herbal products on amazon.com. Hi, I'm Andrea Donsky, founder of NaturallySavvy.com and co-host of our Naturally Savvy podcast. And I am Lisa Davis, MPH health educator, co-host of Naturally Savvy and author of the book, Clean Eating Dirty Sex Memoir Cookbook Healthy Lifestyle Guide. At Naturally Savvy, we are here to help you make healthier lifestyle choices. So we are so honored that you are tuning in to listen to our podcast on a weekly basis. And we are here to engage you, have fun, and help you live your healthiest lifestyle. Now, on to the show. Naturally Savvy Podcast is sponsored by Morphus for Menopause. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy Radio. It is so important to have a healthy brain. And joining us today is the wonderful Dr. Chad Larson, NMD, DCCCNCSCS. I'm going to ask him about all those things. We're going to be talking about the five most important lifestyle practices for maintaining a healthy brain. Now, he is advisor and consultant on clinical consulting team for Cyrex Laboratories. He holds a doctor of naturopathic medicine degree from Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine and a doctor of chiropractic degree from Southern California University of Health Sciences. He is a certified, oh, I'm seeing what these are now. Great. He's a certified clinical nutritionist and a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He particularly pursues advanced developments in the fields of endocrinology, orthopedics, sports medicine, and environmentally induced chronic disease. Wow. Dr. Chad Larson, you are amazing. Welcome to Naturally Savvy. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So when did you first get interested in healthy living and when did you know that you wanted to actually work in these amazing fields? Really early on. I was, you know, I was one of these kind of weird kids that would like take apart like uh, my toys and try to figure out how to put them back together. I was interested in like how they worked and stuff like that. And uh, so as time went on and I I remember consciously thinking, what's the most amazing thing on the planet to like figure out how it works? And eventually that led to human beings. And um, so I started, you know, studying the body pretty early on in college. I studied biology and, um, and then it just kind of went from there. And the more you know, the more you realize you need to know. And so I just wanted to keep, keep learning and take a deeper and deeper dive. And um, I'm still on that journey. For people who aren't familiar with naturopathic medicine, I mean, I think most people in our audience are, but we always have new listeners. So if you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, naturopathic medicine is, it kind of bridges the gap between conventional and alternative. We go to medical schools, but they're naturopathic medical schools. The first two years are pretty similar to standard medical schools. You get all the ologies, all the biology and physiology and you do anatomy lab and biochemistry and organic chemistry and all that stuff and um but the second two years it's very different we take a deep dive into diet nutrition Um, we learn 
pharmaceuticals. I'm licensed to prescribe in California. But, you know, one of the reasons why we want to be licensed to prescribe is because you can't help somebody de-prescribe unless you're licensed to prescribe that medication. So, you know, I prescribe uh, medications. Uh, Oftentimes it's hormones. Uh, But, you know, other medications as well. And so I'm glad to have that tool in the tool bag. But we have so many other tools, diet, nutrition, and botanical medicine, and lifestyle, and exercise. And you can really prescribe and dose these natural medicine things in ways that that would probably surprise people. But it's very powerful. And it's just, you know, multiple tools to have in the tool box that I'm happy I can pull out for different situations. Yeah, that's incredible. You're going to have to come back. There's so much more to talk about. Today, we're focusing on the brain. Again, the five most important lifestyle practices maintaining a healthy brain. The first one, and everyone in my audience is going to go, oh, no, Lisa's going to go on and on. I'm not, I promise. But I'm like, sleep is like my religion. So maintain adequate sleep patterns. Talk to us about why this is so important for our brain. Yeah, optimizing the brain is just uh, is just foundational to our general health. And there's probably... I mean, it's, it'd be hard to come up with another factor that has the greatest amount of influence on the brain than sleep. It's just, uh, it's just foundational. There's things that happen in sleep that you can't sort of fulfill in other ways. Like in a diet, you can maybe supplement amino acids or you could supplement vitamins. There's no such thing that happens with sleep. And uh, it's like, for example, this, this just popped in my head in the deeper stages of sleep. So there's there's like 90-minute cycles that we go through. There's non-REM sleep, which has four stages, and that's followed by REM sleep. And about every 90 minutes, this cycle changes as, as, the, as the night goes on. And um, in the deep stage of non-REM sleep, something really crazy happens. All the, the brain cells shrink, and there's like a power washing that happens. It's the central... The, the cerebral spinal fluid kind of flushes the brain and it's, it'd be like Manhattan, all the buildings shrinking to like 200th of their size. And like a power washer comes in and blasts all the streets of all the dirt and debris that happens in our brain every night. And that's just like only sleep can do that. There's no other way for that power washing. And it pulls out all the stuff that is debris and waste and uh, that's just one thing that happens in sleep that's amazing for the brain. That's incredible. I've never heard that before. I like that image of New York. Yeah, when did you learn that? I didn't study this. I, I'm not a brain researcher, like, you know, in the lab doing this stuff. I'm a clinician. So I just have to take the information that all these great, you know, PhD researchers do and try to translate that into clinical medicine. But I get that from Matthew Walker, PhD, my favorite kind of brain specialist. Um, he's written lots and lots of published scientific papers. He has a sleep uh, lab out of uh, UC Berkeley. Um, he's just a brilliant guy. Anything that he reads, that he writes, I want to read. I hear eight to nine is pretty damn important for our bodies yeah, and our yeah. brains. It really is. It's the quantity and it's the quality that really matters. So, yeah, you definitely have the quantity part and it's key. And there's no, you can't make up that time. It's it's lost if you don't get the proper sleep. I know there's so many teenagers who just stay up on their phones and they're oh, getting, such a disaster. When I have a teenager on my schedule, I can predict what they're coming in for. And I could already have almost a treatment plan written before I even see them. And that's 
that's, you know, I, I'm kind of half joking about that, but, but there's some truth to it because it's oftentimes anxiety, depression, yeah. and, and, or some subset of that inability to focus brain fog. Um, and I, you know, pretty close at the top of the medical history, I'm asking them about their sleep and their energy levels. Energy is very low and they go to bed at midnight at the earliest and it might be two or three in the morning. And then they sleep, you know, into the late morning, almost early afternoon. And uh, that's okay, maybe from a quantity standpoint, maybe they're giving, getting seven to eight hours. But in their case, I think it's the wrong seven to eight hours. And they're completely disassociating from the circadian rhythm from our day-night cycle. And it's really messing them up. And that's if they're lucky. A lot of them are actually only getting maybe five to six hours of sleep because they're still waking up kind of early and going to bed when, I mean, midnight is supposed to be the middle of the night, right? <laughs> not, not when you're hopping on a, a Netflix show. And so um, it's a problem. And a lot of teenagers just need to be educated around the importance of sleep. Yeah, I bet you've seen some teens turn around when they actually implement that. I bet it's hard to get oh. them to, but I bet once they feel the difference in their I energy. Mean, in some cases, they go from almost kind of a, a zombie state of just no, no zest for life to just blooming. It's amazing what just a little bit of the right sleep does. In you know, we're talking just a few days, they can get right back on track. And the effect on the immune system, and we're still in a global pandemic right now, and the immune system is very dependent upon sleep. They've done study on NK cells, natural killer cells, which are like our white blood cell superheroes. And with just a single night of decreased sleep, I think in the study it was, it was maybe four hours that they, that the person only had, that the subjects only had four hours. And their NK cell activity plummeted to a fraction of what it is supposed to be. And then fortunately, they followed up the same subjects gave them, I think it was between seven and eight hours, and their NK cell activity came right back up. So, oh, wow. you know, our immune system is very dependent upon sleep. I mean, we can go through every organ system and talk about the importance of sleep. You know, we kind of went on this sleep tangent, but the effect on the brain is like no other. It's, it's impressive. The second point is identify your body's healthy diet. I love that you say your body because I talk a lot on the show about bioindividuality and why that's so important. If you can talk to us about this. Yeah, it is individual. Um, there's some people who I go through their diet and it's otherwise a pretty decent diet. It's be certainly better than the standard American diet, but for them, it's causing prediabetes and looking at the labs helps us to be more of a sharpshooter with the recommendations that we make for that individual because we have to do some things in their diet that maybe 8 out of 10 people don't have to do because they don't have this physiological uniqueness. But in this person, we have to do some, some special things um, just for them. So, yeah, figuring out what your uh, needs are from a food timing standpoint in some ways, it's just important as the food choices that you make from a macronutrient level. How much fat, carbohydrate, and protein do I need to get? Um, where are my, my micronutrients coming from? Micronutrients are like vitamins and minerals. And then and then food timing. And this really, uh, there might be a kind of a core set of things that most people should do, a certain you know base of things. But for the most part, it is very, very individual. 
And you, you mentioned blood tests. What are other ways in addition to that in your practice do you figure out what's best for people in terms of what they should be eating and timing and things like that? Yeah, part of it is finding out where they currently are and what their symptoms are. And it's, it's almost like, you know, if you went to a financial advisor, the first thing they'd say, okay, let's calculate everything that's coming in, everything that's going out. So we have to kind of do that from a dietary perspective is, you know, talk about a diet diary and, and then even like what times a day, oh, my energy really crashes here or I feel great right here. That could have other things, to, you know, there could be hormones involved with that, but certainly their diet can be playing a major role as well. So we kind of want to figure out first where their starting point is, how they feel, how they feel as the day goes on, and then uh, run some lab tests, that sort of subjective information. Then we want some object information where we look at their glucose and we look at their fasting insulin and their hemoglobin A1C and inflammatory markers and their whole sort of cardio cholesterol panel. And we put all that information together, sort of objective lab information with their subjective information and then come up with a specific plan for them. It's interesting with the bio-individuality. Like I feel better on a more of a paleo kind of thing, but heavy on the vegetables, some organic meats, grass-fed meat, lots of healthy fats. And my husband can eat whole grains and feel great. If I eat a bowl of rice, I get like kind of brain fog. You know, I'm very sensitive to grains. And so I think being able to look at that, because you might be walking around in brain fog and be like, I don't understand why I feel so crappy. Well, take a step back. And, you know, maybe take something out. I don't know if you recommend that, but I'm big on like rotation diets, especially if you have a lot of different symptoms. What what, what do you think about that? One of my favorite kind of clinical researchers, his name is Phil Maffetone, and he has something called the the two-week test, which is really a carbohydrate tolerant test. I've been been following him since, I mean, it'll date me a little bit, but since the, gosh, it must have been the late 90s. Yeah, kind of mid to late 90s. And his message has been consistent all this time. And it just works over and over and over again. And the two-week test is basically you take out a whole bunch of variety of carbohydrates, different carbohydrate types, and then you slowly start introducing them. There's kind of a protocol to this. People, I'm sure, can just look up um, Phil Maffetone and the two-week test. And it really helps them to understand how the carbohydrates are affecting them from a symptomatic standpoint. I love labs. I run labs on every new patient. But having a visceral effect from doing this kind of uh, challenge, this food challenge, it has even, uh, I think, a more profound effect because they really feel the difference. They feel what it feels like without those. And then as they start to introduce them, they can start to figure out, first of all, which kind of carbohydrates they tolerate and then what's the quantity that they tolerate? Yeah, I was with a friend yesterday. We like to grocery shop, run our errands together. And she was grabbing some oat milk. And I said, didn't you say that kind of made you feel crummy? She goes, I think it does, but I'm not really sure. So I said, well, why don't you take it out for two weeks? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny because I went, you know, but I'm definitely going to look into him because I think that that makes, it's made such a huge difference for me. And sometimes I'll eat something that I know is going to make me feel crappy, like some pizza, like once in a while, because I'll know it, but. I just want to eat it, but it's a very rare occasion and it's okay, right? Rather than I'm eating these things every day and I feel crappy and I don't know why, that's just a, it's just not a great way to live. A hundred percent. And yeah, and, and there's no judgment against that. You made an informed decision. You're like, okay, I'm going to go eat this. I'm probably not going to feel great later. So you're probably not going to have any 
you know, sophisticated event that you have to be like on top of. You're like, I'm going to eat this. It's a social thing. Maybe I'm going to go with my friends. That's what we're all going to do. And awesome. That's fantastic. Um, but where people get off track is then they kind of spin out from there and they're, they, they beat themselves up. They judge themselves and, and then they kind of spiral down and they just keep eating crappy diet after crappy diet, bad food choices. But what I think you do is you go, I'm going to have this meal and then whatever the next meal is, you're going to be right back on track. And then it's, and then it's, it's no big deal. That's life. We're supposed to feast. We're supposed to do things socially. But if the majority of the time we're making the healthy choices that are right for us, then that's where we can really maintain health, I think. Yeah, I agree. Now, the third one is huge, exercise. So incredibly important. Talk to us about that. Yeah, exercise is kind of like the sleep thing. There's things that happen in exercise that you just can't get anywhere else. From the brain standpoint, um, there's they've done studies on people who have like depression. And obviously, in these studies, they're always going to take a fairly extreme example and, and test their theory. And so they take people who um, have depression and and uh, give them kind of a prescribed amount of exercise. And it's it's minimal. I mean, most of these studies are probably like 150 minutes per week or something like that. Not per day, per week. And so it's very doable. And just a moderate amount of exercise has fantastic effects on the brain. From a very deep cellular standpoint of making our neurons healthier, um, but also making our synapses healthier. The synapse is where neurotransmitters hop from one neuron to the next neuron. And these synapses are very important for neurotransmitters, which are kind of like the, the water in the hose, so to, so to speak. And it's like serotonin and dopamine and GABA and these kind of neurotransmitters, which really dictate how we feel, our mood, our behavior. And it clearly improves our, our neurotransmitter balance. There's studies that show our serotonin goes up, which is kind of a relaxing, feel-good kind of neurotransmitter. Dopamine is kind of our reward and motivation. Uh, GABA is important. That's more of a nighttime neurotransmitter. But we know that exercise during the day helps us to sleep at night. And there's probably multiple mechanisms, but one of them is improving GABA. GABA is our main inhibitory neurotransmitter. So going back to sleep and all these interconnections, exercise is going to help us sleep by helping us to manage our neurotransmitters. You know, I want to go back to the healthy diet for a moment because I mentioned the brain fog, but talk to us about other things with healthy brain. I mean, they talk about omega-3s being important. What are some other key things that we want to be eating for brain health? Yeah, the number one thing, so you mentioned omega-3s, which are really, really vital for multiple things, but certainly from an anti-inflammatory standpoint, the, the brain really likes to, so what we get from like fish oil and omega-3s is, is EPA, uh, icosapentaenoic acid, that's kind of the anti-inflammatory component, and then DHA, docosahexaenoic acid, DHA is like brain food, the brain loves using DHA for fuel, and then the EPA component is very anti-inflammatory, just fantastic for the brain. All the time, as we're burning glucose in our brain, there's a little bit of a byproduct that gets produced from that energy production. We use glucose for fuel in our, in our neurons, and then the brain has a little bit of a byproduct called reactive oxygen species, ROS, which is 
inflammatory. It has a net inflammatory effect. But then we're supposed to have the right amount of anti-inflammatory mechanism to kind of quench that inflammation. And EPA from omega-3 oil is one of them. Um, but I would say at the top of the list in the diet and brain is blood sugar management. If we can help somebody to improve their glucose balance, that's going to be huge for the brain. Like if somebody has insulin resistance, they have insulin resistance in the brain and they're pre-diabetic and that inhibits the brain from optimally utilizing glucose for the brain. So oftentimes to help make sure a person is more metabolically flexible so that the brain could switch between using glucose and ketones, sometimes we'll want to um, put somebody in a state of ketosis, even mild ketosis. This could be done nutritionally from having a, a very low carbohydrate diet, or it could be done um, with sort of uh, intermittent fasting. And there's ways that we could sort of very gently start to increase a person's overnight fast. When they study this stuff, most people are eating in a really huge window, like a 15-hour window from their first meal to their last meal. And that's not biologically how we're wired at all. We're wired to have this long intermittent overnight fast, a minimum of 12 hours, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. But in most people, I try to stress that out to about 14 hours. In some cases, we try to go 15 or 16 hours. And then when people are kind of metabolically fit enough, we might even go um, you know, a 24-hour uh, fast per week in some cases. And in some cases, this is necessary to maintain their metabolic fitness. But if we can get these ketones to kick up in their system, then a person can very easily switch from using ketones for brain fuel and, and glucose. And it also gets gives the glucose mechanism in the brain a break and they get to use the ketones for a period of time, which the brain loves to live on is uh, ketones. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I usually stop eating around 6.30 in the evening. I don't eat again until 9. There you go. That's like 15 hours. That's awesome. That's super helpful. Yeah, I really like that. I want to go back to exercise for a moment. Is it a combination of cardiovascular and strength training or, you know, body weight exercise and things that are good for the brain? Or is one better? Talk to us about that. They each have their own kind of attributes for the brain. When it comes to um, aerobic type fitness, that's really great for uh, maintaining, again, this kind of metabolic health. As we get more aerobically fit, this is sort of the cardio stuff walking, running, jogging, swimming, that kind of stuff gets the heart rate and the breath rate up. Really, really good for the brain. Um, uh, and then we have strength training. I think what we really get, there's lots of below the brain effects of resistance and strength training, but the brain effects is we put ourselves into positions that the brain has to kind of deal with. Like if we're doing lunges, um, that's a little bit of a balance exercise. Awesome for the brain. Oftentimes, we lose our sense of balance as we get older. And this makes a person very vulnerable to tripping and falling, which is a major problem for, for, the, for um, the senior population. And just doing some basic exercise, walking, there's a period of time with every, every step, you're on one leg. And people who kind of lose that balance, they end up kind of shuffling so that they're never on one leg. But if you can practice just your balance, which is going to come from most kind of resistance exercise, it can be some balance worked into it. But a key thing also, just 
just to put a plug in for the muscles, and maybe this is slightly off the brain, but sarcopenia is a real problem. Kind of like osteopenia for the bones, it's bone deficiency. Sarcopenia is muscle deficiency. It's a real problem as we get older. And the muscles, like the brain, is very much supply and demand. The more and more consistent demand that you put on the muscles, your muscles are going to go, oh, okay, we're doing that. All right, let me supply you with the things that you need to maintain those muscles because you keep putting this demand on us. Um, and kind of the third category of exercise is flexibility training. So we have aerobic, kind of cardiovascular fitness. We have strength and resistance. And then we have flexibility and again, it's another use it or lose it kind of thing. If you're not working on improving your flexibility, like being able to squat down, keeping your heels on the ground, um, that's just a, a great thing to be able to do. And there's multiple things that have to go right for you to be able to do that. And doing flexibility is its one of those things that you just have to do it on a regular, be, regular basis. Some people are kind of gifted with this amazing flexibility and, you know, each of us might have to emphasize one of these three categories more than others. But, um, but yeah, those are the three. And they're all important for uh, overall brain function. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's look at healthy gut and eliminate chronic pathogen exposure. Talk on the show about a healthy gut. I'd love your input on that. And also chronic pathogen exposure. Tell us about that. There's multiple sort of components that influence brain health. And then the flip side of that coin is what things cause brains to be unhealthy, what causes maybe neuroinflammation or neurodegeneration. We all want to avoid neurocognitive decline. And um, pathogens, it just has to be on the list. We talk about other things that help to improve uh, brain function, like the diet and exercise and, and these kind of things. But when there are certain pathogens, certain viruses, certain bacteria. We know that these can influence brain health. And so if somebody has, um, you know, kind of a chronic condition, maybe they have an autoimmune condition or they have some kind of chronic inflammatory condition, that could, that might be initially manifesting as joint pain or muscle pain or something sort of below the brain level. But eventually those pathogens can influence the brain. Some of these pathogens come from the gastrointestinal tract. And let, let me give you a specific example. There are certain gram-negative bacteria. You've heard of the gram-negative bacteria like E. coli, Klebsiella, and Salmonella, and, and there's a whole bunch of other ones. These are normal in the gut. A certain amount are acceptable. There's like two to three pounds of bacteria in the gut. Oh my gosh. And it's mostly in the large intestine and the colon. And this is normal, but they're kept in check by healthy good guys. And so there's a balance there of the good guys and the bad guys. But for a variety of reasons, there could be hyperproliferation of these gram-negative bacteria. They produce a toxin called uh, lipopolysaccharides. They also make another one called cytolethal distending toxin. Both of these toxins can break down the integrity of the intestinal barrier. The barrier is kind of a um, a system that keeps things in the gut and preventing them from going into your bloodstream. But if you have leaky gut or breakdown of your intestinal barrier, then these uh, pathogenic compounds are allowed to cross through the barrier system into your circulation. They hit the circulation superhighway. They've been demonstrated to go up to the brain, break down the blood-brain barrier, 
And then these inflammatory toxins are allowed to cause neuroinflammation in the brain. So this is one of these key kind of gut brain connections. And there's multiple gut brain connections, but this is one of them, how pathogens and pathogen toxins from the gastrointestinal tract can end up infiltrating and causing inflammation in the brain. Wow. So what can we do? Yeah, that seems really crazy for people like, wait, my gut stuff is going to my brain. I know. It's fully know. validated in science. This is this is real. This is happening. Viruses as well. People get simple cold sores, which is HSV-1, herpes simplex virus 1. And HSV-1 has been implicated in neurodegeneration. So, you know, maintaining gut health is really paramount. It's up there with like sleep and the brain. So, so key. The more that we're learning about the intestinal microbiome, the more we're learning that our entire body depends on the health of the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome is this balance of good guys and bad guys in the gut. So that's where it has to start. It has to start with maintaining healthy gut flora. And it goes to a lot of the things we talked about. Sleep definitely helps to maintain gut balance. Um, Choosing the right foods. Foods are everything for the gut barrier. If we're choosing, you know, fast food, crappy food, um, these processed seed oils, they ha- they've been unfortunately branded as vegetable oils, as if you're like squeezing broccoli and making oil. <laughs> That's not what's happening. They're taking like a soybean and with very, very intense chemical processes, creating oil out of that soybean or out of that, you know, seed or something. And it's, it's really, really inflammatory oils, very inflammatory for the gut and will be eventually inflammatory for the brain. So we got to get those right. We have to be aware of the medications that we're consuming. We have to be aware of the amount of alcohol we're consuming. All these things influence the integrity of the intestinal barrier. In addition to things like glyphosate from Roundup, that very um, common pesticide that's used commercially, glyphosate has now been implicated in disrupting the integrity and balance of our gut microbiome, which will eventually influence the gut barrier. So we want to make sure we're eating organic foods. Foods that are organic are not supposed to have any traces of glyphosate. Who knows what's actually happening environmentally? Maybe there's still some degree happening, but we have to do the best we can by choosing these types of foods. What do you think about the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15? I send people to ewg.org all the time. Environmental Working Group, they're the ones that put up this annual list of the Dirty Dozen. So in other words, the Dirty Dozen are the 12 most heavily sprayed crops. And so if you do nothing else organic, you should do these 12 foods organic. There's some that you know hit the list every single year and some that kind of come off and on the list. But yeah, so that's the Dirty Dozen. The Clean 15 are foods that you really don't need to even get organic because they're so frequently, even just when they're conventionally grown, they just don't require a lot of pesticides for their for their for the farming practices. And so they're they're typically very, very clean. So those are lists that uh, I'd suggest people look at every single year. Um, they're a nonprofit group. It's nice if you can, you know, throw them a few bucks here and there. And because they're doing really, really great work and they're not tied to any industries, which always concern me when they're tied to industries. It's a nonprofit group. They do things with not just vegetables and produce, but with uh, uh, sunscreens 
They do a deep dive into sunscreens. They'll tell you what sunscreens to get and what sunscreens not to get. They do it with uh, seafood, let you know, you know what food has highest amount of mercury and those kind of things. They do all this work for us, and we can just pop on their website and read it. So it's, uh, it's, it's a really great company. EWG.org? Yeah. Now, the last one is the importance of getting tested for brain and cognitive functions. There's some simple things that people can do to start to evaluate their their brains. Um, there's some simple things that, that we can do clinically. There's some testing. There's different um, studies that have looked at certain questionings that we can do uh, clinically to take a person through a process to kind of see what their cognitive issues are. There's, um, there's tests that we can run to help us understand a person's cognition, but there's some good kind of at-home computer programs. Um, where, you know, one of my favorite brain researchers, his name is uh, Dale Bredesen. He has a brain center out of uh, UCLA. Yeah, he wrote a book called The End of Alzheimer's. I think his latest one is called End of Alzheimer's Program, where he gets uh, very detailed about some specific things about the brain. And um, he has some association with, uh, I think it's called Apollo Health. And on Apollo Health, it's a website. There's actually a, a cognitive uh, test that people can go and take this test. And it's very sophisticated. And it gives you sort of a score at the end. And it lets you know kind of how your, what components of your cognition you need to work on. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's ways that we could really quantify where a person is at. Because it's hard to know, like, okay, when I, yes, when I go into a room, I, I forget why I've gone into that room sometimes. But that's Gosh. just kind of some, a sort <laughs> of subjective. Yeah, and that's subjective stuff. We want, we want some, you know, some objective information as well that's, you know, kind of qualified to be a true sort of memory and cognition test. So those are some resources that, um, that I like to use. Oh, that is so cool. Well, tell us about Cyrex Laboratories. Yeah, so Cyrex Laboratories has a key focus on immune system dysregulation and autoimmunity. Um, so in that regard, um, all the panels that, that they offer um, look at different sort of triggers for the body uh, to become imbalanced, especially with regard to the immune system. So things like we mentioned, like the gut barrier they have a great test called Array 2, which looks at um, very sophisticated markers that let you know from a laboratory standpoint, is there leaky gut? There's great tests for food sensitivities. Cyrex was kind of first to industry in multiple ways, and now lots of labs have sort of copycatted them, um, and you know, which is fine. But, uh, but they're first to industry. They're first ones that come up with this kind of leaky gut test. Now, many labs offer a test like that. Um, they're the first ones to come up with a very, very comprehensive gluten and wheat evaluation. They were notoriously uh, under-evaluating people for gluten sensitivity. The Array 3 is a very, very deep dive. And then there's other tests that look at things like pathogens um, and chemical sensitivity. And there's actually one for the brain called the Alzheimer's Links panel, which uh, takes a deep dive into different brain proteins uh, the blood-brain barrier is on there. Oftentimes, I want to couple the links panel, the Alzheimer's links panel, with a gut barrier evaluation to really make the connection between the gut and the brain. So we can really see if somebody has a predisposition for developing these kind of neural uh, inflammatory conditions. 
there's the the wheat and gluten test, which takes a very very deep dive. Um, kind of the old school markers for like celiac disease or even gluten sensitivity were way too limited. Gluten sensitivity was being missed left and right, so we have to take a much deeper dive. So that's what this array three looks at. There's also chemical sensitivities, people reacting to things like mercury or bisphenol A, BPA, which is all over the place. And these can cause immune system dysregulation and also pathogens. We talked briefly about pathogens, but there's an array called array 12, which takes a very, very deep dive into 25 or 30 different pathogens. And then um, there's a brain kind of neurocognition, neurodegeneration test called the Alzheimer's Lynx panel. And this Lynx panel I like to couple with the gut barrier, the array two. So we have gut barrier, and then we have some brain markers. And so it's nice to put that together to figure out from a biochemical standpoint what a person's risk factor is for for neurodegeneration. That's incredible. Dr. Larson, you are so fabulous. I'd love to have you on the show a lot. I think you're amazing and you know so much. Tell us all the ways that we can find you in the meantime before you come back. Just, uh, I probably need to work on my websites, but I've got a website that's just my name spelled out D O C T O R, Dr. Chad Larson.com. Um, my, my, my private practice is called the Adapt Lab, the Adapt Lab. So our website is the Adapt Lab.com. It's, uh, it's workable, but it's, it's fairly under construction. Um, I've been in clinical practice for, for 20 something years, but I recently started this practice in uh, Southern California. And so uh, people can reach us through there. Um, I've been trying to post some things on Instagram at Dr. Chad Larson. So those are probably the key ways. You're able to work with people who live outside of California, I understand. Yeah, I'm able to. uh, We could do, you know, sort of teleconferencing. I prefer using kind of a Zoom kind of, you know, video platform so that I could actually see the person. There's so much that you can pick up when you see person just over the phone is you can lose some things although i'm comfortable doing that i've done that many times we kind of prefer a more kind of video format and then oftentimes you know we're taking a history and then uh, i want to run some blood work and so we'll probably do uh, some kind of lab testing and put together the the subjective information with the objective lab information and that's usually what we need um, in addition to what the person's health goals are put all that together and then come up with a plan that's fantastic. Chad, tell us one more time how to find you again, What your, the website. Yeah, drchadlarson.com, kind of a work in progress, and then and then theadaptlab.com. All right. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you, and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.